Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me this week. Another great guest. I am interviewing David Page. Now, David, he is the creator of, I think, a lot of people's uh, favorite show on the Food Network. He created Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Um, We're going to talk all about that, how he got the idea for it. It's probably going to surprise you on exactly how that came about. Um, We're going to talk about the book that he just wrote, uh, Food Americana. Uh, it just uh, w- w- at the end we talk about it being available for pre-order, but it is available now. Um, we recorded it just a little while ago, so do check that out. Just a really fascinating conversation um, covering you know TV and how food shows are are made. Um, covering food, that's really kind of the the cool thing that we talked about. Just the culture behind food, how Americans um, you know got uh, I guess so so crazed about Chinese food and Mexican food and all these other cultures foods and how we modified them uh, to suit our taste you know some of the the I guess resurgence of uh, you know more not authentic food but more, more food that are more like um, you know what they are in their native homeland just a, a really really cool conversation learned so much about you know food and food culture and the culture behind um, those who make it. David, I'll tell you, he's just a, an absolute wealth of information. I really enjoyed speaking with him. Um, without further ado, here is my interview with David Page. I am here today with David Page. David, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for asking. Yeah. Well, let's kind of just get into it a little bit about you and, and growing up. First, how did you become such a, a food lover? Um, I think it's genetic to some extent. I, I've always <laughs> enjoyed food, but, um, over the years, as I um, was lucky enough to travel as a journalist, mm-hmm. I began sampling, um, local foods, regional foods, specialty foods. And then after spending a number of years in Europe as a journalist, um, it became a fascination for me wherever I went or whatever I did to see, what the local dish was and uh it has served me well over the years although not my waistline yeah so i mean when you so you were a journalist um you know first i guess and was it something that you wanted to get into did you want to get into food journalism or did that kind of just happen i guess kind of luckily given that you you always were were interested in food and and the culture behind it I, I stumbled into it. You know, one's career goes where it goes. I had been um, at uh, NBC News and ABC News for a number of years and went out onto my own to freelance as a journalist and found myself doing a fair amount of work with a guy who at one point had worked for me when I ran the Weekend Today show, Al Roker, mm-hmm. before he was on the weekday show. And Al on the side had his own production company. They were doing a fair amount of work for the food network. So I started working um, on projects for them through him. And then eventually began pitching them projects of my own, which turned into diners, drive-ins and dives. And next thing you know, I'm a food journalist. Um, You know, at at various stages in your career, you whatever you've done last. Mm -hmm. So I've been an investigative journalist. I've been a foreign journalist. I've been a consumer journalist. I've been a hard news journalist. Uh, I've been a morning show journalist and now I'm a food journalist. Um, The difference is that I truly, truly am fascinated by food Mm. and more than the taste of it, although I certainly love to eat, um, the sociological aspects of it, which I saw so much of when I was reporting overseas, in every culture, food is the social lubricant. Mm-hmm. Food is the way people get together. Food is the center of, in many respects, the human universe. And I just find that intriguing and fascinating. Yeah, no, that's 100% kind of how I feel too. It, you know, there's an entirely different, you know, 
food show that talks all about how food brings us together. And that's kind of the, the thing that stitches us all. And, and I, I, I agree, you know, when I've traveled and being able to go to these different restaurants and, and see just the culture behind food and, and how it kind of just shapes the culture as a whole, it's a, it's a really big thing. So you did mention, you know, the diners, drive-ins and dives and, and, you know, you being the creator of that, we haven't necessarily said that yet, uh, but that's, that's kind of a, a big claim to fame. So tell us just a little bit about how you created the show, because I know it, uh, in listening to some of your other interviews, wasn't necessarily like a, you've always had this lifelong ideal of diners, drive-ins and dives and fi- someone finally took it. It was a little bit of a kind of a, a coincidence that it happened. You mean smoke and mirrors? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had been pitching shows to the Food Network unsuccessfully for quite a while. Now, early on, I had done a show for them for Al Roker's production company about diners, the history of diners. And I'm on the phone one day with a sympathetic executive at the Food Network who is rejecting everything I come up with. And she finally, in frustration, says, do you have anything about diners? So I instantly say, oh, yes, I'm developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And this was a Thursday or a Friday. She said, well, we have a, a pitch meeting on Tuesday. Get me something on Monday. So I had not been working on a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. I just pulled that title out of thin air during our phone call. Hmm. Um, kind of fake it till you can make it. And I spent the weekend uh, talking to people throughout the food industry, um, put in a, a pitch on Monday, um it was presented tuesday shortly thereafter uh it was picked up for a one-time only special they didn't think it had legs and guy guy fietti had won the uh, food network star contest and they were looking for a prime time vehicle for him they picked up my special i think kind of as a space filler to keep him on the air while they were trying to find a prime time project they they were they had high hopes for a couple of big name production companies who came back with pitches that they found disappointing. So I guess figuring, you know, what, what the hell have we got to lose? They commissioned one short series of diners. Uh, I think it was either eight episodes or 10. They ended up adding a couple episodes before the year was over because to their surprise, it was quite successful. Um, Now, in that first season, when it was being called successful, they they made it clear to me that they didn't think there were enough places nationally for this thing to go on very long. Uh, You know, maybe a couple seasons at best. We proved that wrong. Um, And that that's the story. I mean, basically, it started out as BS and turned into probably the biggest hit that networks ever had. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, again, it wasn't something that you had just dreamt up forever so you may have not even had an idea but was was guy you know what you envisioned the the host of the show to be no i had no idea who he was i had not seen food network star i was not a viewer of the food network and uh when they i started to propose possible host for the show and they said no no we got the guy we want you to do the show with Mm -hmm. and they told me who it was and i clicked on i guess their website and saw this spiky haired guy in short pants and thought to myself, I'm screwed. Um, <laughs> he, he turned out to have as much natural television talent uh, as anyone I've ever worked with. Um, it was a question of, um, I hate to say it, it was a question of teaching him how to do TV, certainly in the field TV, the whole uh, Food Network star thing was studio, which is a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the man's incredibly talented. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly what was your role with the show once you, I know obviously you pitched it, but then what did you do with the show? I I executive produced it for 11 seasons, uh, which, and I was a very hands-on executive producer. So the final edit of every show went through my computer. Um, I approved, rewrote the scripts. I I was functioning as um, the hands-on producer of the show. Uh, cause that's the most fun. You know, a lot of EPs, they get a show and they hand it off to someone, they move on to the next one. I like making the show. Yeah. 
So did you, did you actually go on location with, with all these places? Did you travel around too? Or? For the first season I traveled. Then at that point, it became a matter of making shows out of the stuff. And I couldn't be on the road and and back in the office at the same time. Because remember, we were doing three locations per show. I don't know what they're doing today, but... So that's a lot of segments that need to be coordinated. And you got to make sure that if the second one's all about ham, the first one, they can't slip a hamburger, uh, you know, a ham topped hamburger into the hamburger segment because it, it has to coordinate. Uh, so at that point I was, I was back in the office. Yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned that they didn't think that there was going to be enough material for, for very long, which was obviously very wrong. Um, but how, how did you guys find the places? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them or, or how did the, the places uh, get picked? Um, we, and it was, it was hard in the first year because no one knew what we were after that. When you called up or a researcher called up and said, I'm with Dinah Shrevens and Dives, they, they knew what we were, but even after we were known, yes, we would get people pitching places, but very, very few of our bookings ever came from that because um, people's favorite restaurants are not necessarily the best restaurants. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that people have a connection to. In other words, mm-hmm. um, there's a Calvin Trillin, famed food writer. Well, famed humorist. He, he would tell you he's not a food writer, but he's written a lot about food will tell you that the best hamburgers on earth are at Winstead's in Kansas City. And then he will tell you that's because he grew up at, in Kansas City. And anyone who doesn't think the best hamburgers on earth come from a place they went when they were a kid is wrong. Um, so that said, I had a very high bar for these places in terms of the food really had to be good. And there were some places that we walked out of um, after showing up, which the, the network thought I was kind of nuts for eating the money on that but these had to be real yeah. um to the extent that i'm not going to do a pancake restaurant unless it makes its own batter mm. um that sort of thing so we started uh, at, at basic research whatever town you were looking at going to um you'd call the local newspaper you'd call the local magazine you'd talk to food critics you'd get recommendations then you would talk to the restaurants in question and see what their answers were to your questions. Like, do you make your own salad dressing? Um, which, by the way, is the sign of a smart restaurateur, even more than a good restaurateur, because it's much cheaper to make your own salad dressing. Mm. Any restaurant that doesn't make their own dressings and soups is, is burning money. But having said that, we'd, we'd walk down a checklist um, and basically cull the ones that we thought were legit and and book them yeah yeah well you're already kind of giving giving a little bit of my next question away just by i had no idea that it went into that intricate detail but some things that uh i guess would surprise us about the the making of of that show and really shows in general but some things that people wouldn't probably know that that goes into the whole production well okay we were unique in two respects number one i refused to let anybody make it up Everything we put on the air, I subjected to the same standards of honesty and accuracy that I employed when I was in charge of investigations for 2020. That's unusual in the reality business. I actually had a would-be senior producer um, part ways with me over that early on because she couldn't believe that uh, I wasn't going to let her make up what are called Frankenbites in the business. You take two halves of two different sentences and have someone saying something they never said. Um, number two, most cable food shows are shot multi-camera. It's quicker, but it compromises the quality of the pictures you can get because you're lighting for everything to be seen from everywhere. And when movies start routinely shooting with multiple cameras, um, so will I. In the meantime, we, we shot single camera, which means that we made the same dish four or five times to get it from multiple angles. Um, but uh, that, that was one of our secrets, I guess. The other thing is um, I prefer to shoot 
when the restaurant's actually open um, so that you're getting honest answers from consumers at the restaurant and you're seeing the normal energy of the place. After I left, apparently that practice was changed and the restaurants are closed when they shoot. But hey, um, that's truly, I think, the standard in the industry. Um, and please understand, I'm not, I'm not criticizing anything anyone else chooses to do. Um, they continue to put out um, a terrific show for everything I can tell. So please don't, don't, uh, don't think I'm being negative in any way. Uh, and as long as Guy's the host of that show, it's going to be terrific. Uh, the man is just so talented. Yeah. And you, you said you were there for 11 years. How no, many, 11 seasons. We 11 were doing three seasons, seasons a year. So how yeah. many seasons have there been now? Do you know? Oh, they may be up to like 30 at this point. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of might lead into, I guess, a little bit, you know, of the, the joys of it. Then, and then maybe, you know, some of why you, you're, you're not there anymore. But what are some of your favorites and least favorite parts of, of the, being on the show and, and doing it? The thing I liked loved the most was that we were able even without knowing it to save a lot of small restaurants that were on the mm. cusp of going under um secondly i love the people who run these places mm -hmm. they're doing something that is hard that is pure that is legit i mean mom and pop restaurants um are an endangered backbone of this country mm -hmm. and you know, no disrespect to chains, but chains have killed a ton of them. And now COVID has killed a bunch more because mm -hmm. um, for many, many mom and pop restaurants, uh, there simply wasn't enough pillow to survive COVID. For every family owned, individually owned home cooking restaurant that we lose, um, America's losing something. It's, it's just a shame. You know, one, one of the restaurants that um, I have in my book was a place I, I first ran into doing diners, um, El Indio Mexican Restaurant San Diego, which has been in the same family for more than 80 years now and still making the food they've been making for at least 50 of those years, hand-making their own tortillas from the corn, they, they nixtamalize the corn, which almost no one does. And they're still in there swinging. And, and when you talk to Jennifer Pasquera, who, who owns the place, um, you just, you come away with a warm feeling. It's, it's really something special. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not something I even really thought of when, when you were, when I asked that question, just to be able to, to know that that show can have, the power of, of uh, you know, helping a restaurant stay afloat and, and maybe, you know, I guess, revigorate and, and things like that's a really big thing. I think that's really cool. Definitely in, in the world that we're in now with COVID, um, you know, you, you, may know, you may know this better than I do. There was some, I was reading an article about COVID and Chinese restaurants, which we're going to talk a little bit about based on your book. Um, but there's some, like the oldest Chinese restaurant is in America is like in some little town and like, not little, but like Topeka. It's, it's, it, it's in the book. It is in the book. What, where, it's where in, is it it's, in, it's in Butte, Montana. There we go. It's, yeah. And yeah. it's, and it's, and they're struggling with COVID. And I just thought that was such a, an interesting yeah. article. Jer Jerry Tam, who owns the place. Um, it's a great, great place. It is as throwback a restaurant as you'll find in the world of Chinese food. It's your, one of the original chop suey parlors. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, in fact, Jerry's father passed away not that long ago while I was writing the book. They, um, they say they're the oldest, certainly the oldest family of Chinese restaurant in America. They're in Butte, Montana because um, Chinese restaurants which started in the United States and San Francisco with the gold rush expanded initially along the lines of um, other mining exploration. And there was a lot of copper mining in Montana. Uh, Butte, I believe was the center of it. And they set up there in the 1800s 
1800s, early 1900s. Let me, let me not be wrong, but they, they set up there early on. Let me put it that way. And they have a very colorful past because the restaurant was almost an afterthought. I mean, they were a gambling parlor. It's pretty clear they were likely a brothel as well. I mean, they, they were kind of a center of activity for, for miners there. It's called the um, Pekin Noodle Parlor. I want to double check that, but yeah, no, and, I, and I, I, yeah, I, I read an article not too long ago about them, and yeah, they were talking about that that past they had, definitely of uh, you know a a gambling hall, which I just thought was was interesting. They kind of live out the Andy Griffith show, you know, with the with the uh, gambling in the back of the of the Chinese oh, yeah. restaurant. So I just thought that was really really cool. Yeah, I just double checked it in the galley. It's the Pekin Noodle Parlor. Yeah. And it's 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 legendary. Yeah. Absolutely. It's um they're still make they're still making the old fashioned dishes the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to start talking about your book, Food Americana. Um it talks about American cuisine, but I, I can't help but notice, I guess, reading, you know, the chapters of the book. It is about American cuisine, but it talks a lot about, you know. Chinese food and and Mexican food and and, the and sushi and of bagels, yeah. So it, I guess, the big question is: Is there true American cuisine, or is it really just a melting pot like we we claim that we are as a as a culture? It is totally a melting pot. Mm-hmm. One of the themes of the book is how we have created a cuisine of our own from everybody else's, mm-hmm. um, and certainly not to get political, but interesting to discuss given the recent controversies over immigration. Hmm. Um, Different peoples coming to the United States have brought their own foodways here. Um, And over time, well, they modified in two ways. Number one, um, they were instantly modified because what you found here as an immigrant was not, in, in terms of raw material, was not what you had back home. Mm-hmm. For example, the uh, folks who came from southern Italy uh, could not find here the wheat that was used in pizza back in Naples. Wheat here is higher in protein and requires a different cooking time and comes out to a different Christmas. They could not find the mozzarella cheese that they were used to back home because it would rot on the voyage here by ship. They also found different kinds of ovens, um, all of which resulted in a variety of pizza. That pizza was then further modified to, um, to American tastes mm. over the years. I mean, we now have 30 different styles of pizza or more. Um, there's Detroit pizza. There's grandma pizza. There, there's... Um, what we think of as um, pizza from Naples, uh, pizza napolitana, although most uh, pizzerias serving that in the United States are serving it crispier than it would actually be served in Naples because pizza is served in Naples is actually somewhat soupy Mm. and not what Americans are necessarily used to. Um, There's something called Old Forge pizza made in a small town in Pennsylvania um, originally for the miners when there was a lot of coal mining there um, that uses processed cheese um, and is like nothing you'll get anywhere else. And by the way, it's fantastic. I buy it off Gold Belly from one of the places in Old Forge. Um, Chinese food obviously uh, was heavily modified um, over time to fit American tastes. Uh, Mexican food evolved some of it evolved simply as the Mexican population uh, that was on this side of the border that was created by the Mexican-American War. I mean, basically, you took a hunk of Mexico cut in half. Half of those folks were stuck in what was now the U.S. Um, to some extent, food modified based on the availability of product here, yellow cheese instead of white. It also was modified, um, made less... Um, spicy to suit America's tastes. Mm-hmm. Although what you're seeing now, um, all these many years later, is a growing, quote, authenticity movement. Now, mm-hmm. food professionals, food historians don't really like the word authenticity, 
because it implies that a food that has evolved is somehow not authentic, and that's not true at all. What is true is that Mexican-American food and Mexican food are now very different. They're both cuisines. But what you're seeing in the U.S. now is an increasing interest in food as it is or was served in its long-ago country of origin. Uh, in terms of Mexican food, to a great extent, that's simply... Um, not simply, but, but primarily the result of immigration from Mexico from other parts of the country. People from Puebla, for example, bringing mole with them. People from Jalisco or in later years, um, Tijuana, bringing something called Bidia de Ace, which is a kind of incredible beef stew that is now um, very popular all across the country. Um, you know, you see some of it in the world, for example, of um, sushi, where sushi as originally eaten in the U.S. was pretty simple. Sushi as eaten in Japan is pretty simple. Uh, nobody in Japan ever thought of a dragon roll or a California roll. Um, that's how most Americans choose to have their sushi. On the other hand, if you go to Nobu in New York, where dinner is $5.95 a person, as in $595 a person, you're going to get sushi um, done as it would be at the highest end restaurants in Japan. Um, and, and by the way, across all forms of food, um, regionalism is, uh, is of growing interest to many people in America. You know, what's available in this part of this country that I haven't had before? You, you see Stanley Tucci's CNN show where he's um, chasing after different Italian uh, dishes, um, region by region, uh, I think you're going to see a lot more regional Italian cuisine uh, in the near future. Yeah. Well, you, you answered in that, in that one, one explanation, several of the questions that I have. So you've definitely done this just a, a few times, I think. <laughs> no, I just, I care deeply about it. It, it matters to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm fascinated by it. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I, I had I had Bidia when I was in Mexico several years ago on a shoot. Mm -hmm. I never saw it in the U.S. Then all of a sudden it started to become popular. Shortly before I finished the book, um, I learned of a Bidia truck in South Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. I live uh, on the southern part of the Jersey Shore. It's about 90 minutes to Philly. My wife and I got in the car and we drove down and we went to that trek and damn, it was good. It was just fantastic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, as my daughter often says to me, and she started when she was like eight years old, dad, how come every, every time we talk about a place, you're talking about the food. Yeah. And that's, that's how I, um, so I immerse myself in other cultures, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can agree with you there. We actually have a very, a place here in Indianapolis. It's in a converted old gas station. They're only open until five o'clock, which is crazy when it comes to, I guess they don't want to serve the dinner crowd, but it's amazing. So yeah, I, I agree with you there. Do they sure. give you that cup of consomme to dip the taco into? Oh, they, the absolutely. They do. They do. Um, you know, the same way with, with Chinese food, because you did talk about, you know, the, I guess the America's obsession with Chinese food. You talked about I was shocked to read. I think I've heard it once or twice before, but it's shocking every time I see it that Chinese food restaurants, there's more Chinese food restaurants than McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, and KFC combined. Why do you think, first, why are we so obsessed with Chinese food? Second is, why do you think, I guess, why do you think that we're so, we, we wanted to change it so much? Because I, I mean, I've been to, you know, a lot of the, you know, authentic dim sum restaurants. And it's, it's nothing like, you know, general so's chicken and, and things like that either. So. Well, there's a number of answers in here. Number one, unfortunately for what constitutes the majority of the Chinese food menu in America, um, it became so popular because it was cheap. Mm. Um, it was cheap. I mean, it's a kind of what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Once it was cheap, it had to stay cheap. Um, it was a leg up for Chinese immigrants in the United States. Um, number two, in all candor, for those who came here illegally, um, it was a safe place to work and, if you will, hide. Thirdly, um, 
one of the reasons it remained cheap was because family labor was frequently used. Um, and one of the things you're now seeing is many Chinese restaurants closing because the owners don't want to see their kids going into that line of work or their kids don't want to. It is a very tough way to make a living. Um, as for things like General Chaz Chicken, um, look, so many dishes uh, that are part of the American Chinese menu have been specifically tailored to suit American tastes. Uh, they've been made crunchy. They've been made sweet. Um, the original General Cho's Chicken, and there's a great documentary on this done by Jennifer A. Lee, her middle name is the number eight, called In Search of General Chow, where she actually chased the story back to the chef in, I believe, Taipei, who is generally credited with inventing the dish, for whom the New York version of it was an alien substance. As he made it, it was actually fiery not sweet, not gooey. It was a completely different dish. Um, what's interesting in America now is that there are enough Chinese, um, enough people of Chinese descent or recent immigrants that the Chinese food community is now to a great extent, in many cases, able to survive by serving Chinese people in America what they are used to eating from China. Uh, I describe in the book going to um, a huge food court in Flushing, Queens, um, serving an almost entirely Chinese uh, clientele. The food was incredible. But, it, you know, if you like artery and if you like duck blood and if you like incredibly spicy um, hot pot and if you like uh, and not all of it was extreme in any way, it was extraordinary food. A phenomenal kind of crunchy filled crepes, um, soups, lamb, um, just extraordinary food that most people would not know of as Chinese. Although what's interesting with Chinese food is you've got a, a huge population here in a country that is fast developing and things move very fast in China. So the food as served in China is evolving very quickly. Mm. Um, one of the most popular dishes in China right now is scrambled eggs and tomatoes hmm. made, made in a wok or a wok is, as it's actually pronounced. They are, you know, so at, at which point you say what's traditional, what's authentic. It's, it's a moving target. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I, I mean, based on, obviously we've already talked about how, you know, American cuisine is a, a melting pot and it, it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly what that means. But just, I guess, for my own personal benefit, because I'll tell you a little backstory. Um, my fiance is actually from the Philippines. So she's always asking me, what is American food? Like, you know, what, 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 is, what is it? What, am I, what are we supposed to be eating as American food? And of course, I say, you know, hamburgers and hot dogs and steak and pork chops, I guess. But I don't truly know the answer. Can you give the answer? What is real traditional, so to speak, American food? Well, traditional American food, you know, people seem to think of it like Yankee pot roast. Mm. Okay. Uh, to the extent that many of our early um, settlers were from England. Mm. And if you could afford beef, that was something to have. And, and the tradition, the Puritan tradition was simplicity. So things were often boiled. Okay. So that's sort of bland protein you could argue is a kind of early american food pardon me that was my phone That's you could argue was a kind of early american food but it was brought from england just as in the south um you could argue that fried chicken is an american food except it was either brought here by the scottish or by enslaved africans there is a tradition of frying chicken in Africa, but not the same way. And in any event, the method of eventually cooking and spicing it clearly was developed by enslaved Africans. So what makes that an American food? In other words, um, 
even something as basic as lobster rolls. Lobster, you would think of as an American food because it existed here, but it was really a Native American food that the settlers didn't want to eat in the first place. And when the Native Americans told them, uh, look, this is how we eat or you're going to starve, people ate lobster. Oysters are native to America and the settlers love them. But oysters were originally European, so they were bringing a love of oysters with them. It is my contention that American food is that which we as a culture have chosen to make a regular part of our diets. Um, it, it comes, for the most part, from someplace else. Now, lox and bagels. I'm a New York Jew. I love my lox and bagels. Um, the concept of eating smoked fish was European, as was the original bagel, which was smaller and harder. Um, but nobody ate lox, um, you know, smoked salmon in Europe. Uh, smoked salmon entered the American um, diet when it was finally, uh, when we had a railroad that crossed the country and it was possible to transport salmon from the Northwest to the East Coast. So I guess you could argue that lox was an American dish. I don't think it's seen that way by most people. However, bagels are now such an integrated part of American cuisine that the company selling the most bagels at retail in the United States is Dunkin' Donuts. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, this is not a question I thought I'd ask, but you just seem like a, I guess a wealth of knowledge. And you mentioned, um, you know, lobster. Is it true? Because you were talking about, you know, lobster with Native Americans and, you know, telling the settlers about it. But is it true or just something that I heard and have been telling people that lobster did not start out as a fancy dish? They actually, this is what I heard. They served it on the Titanic to the people below because it was kind of a, a cheap dish and people didn't like it. Now, suddenly it started being a, a fancy thing in, in the steakhouses. Um, I cannot verify the Titanic story. I do, I do not know that one. <laughs> okay. But yes, lobster was about as far down the totem pole as you could go in colonial America. It was the last thing anyone wanted to eat. Mm. There is a story that it was served to prisoners and that there was some sort of uprising or law passed to make it impossible. I, that seems apocryphal. No one's ever proven that one. But yes, nobody wanted lobster. Yeah. It looked like a bug and, you know, no thanks. Yeah, no, that, that makes some sense. So this may be the hardest question of all, definitely given I can tell you passion behind food. Um, you know, but we've, we've talked all about these different dishes and cuisines. What is, what is your favorite cuisines or dishes? And you may not be able to answer. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm very partial to Mediterranean cuisine, specifically mm. Spanish. Okay. Um, but if I had to have, you know, what's the death row meal? It yeah. would be brisket and sausage from Louis Miller's barbecue in Taylor, Texas. Mm. I, gotcha. um, I, I went there three in the morning and uh, in the first season of diners and watched Bobby Miller, who has since passed his son, Wayne Nellens the place, watch Bobby start the fire for that day's brisket. And to this day, I've eaten plenty of shishi places around the world. To this day, that's probably the best single meal you can have. It's served on butcher paper. And the interior of the restaurant has so much soot built up on the windows from decades of smoking. But that's a place to eat before you die. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that specific place, but I know, you know, brisket and the smoked sausage, definitely in Texas. I had a great one in, in Groon, Texas. So I know that's a great meal. Um, so yeah, that's a place to check out for sure. So with your, with your book, kind of as a, a closing thing with, um, you know, food Americana, what, it, what do you want people to gain, um, from reading the book? I want them to have fun. Um, I want them to come away from it saying, Hey, Martha, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I want to add pleasure and information 
around something that is central to our lives. Mm -hmm. I also want to give form to the fact that we as Americans do have a cuisine. We've built it from everyone else's, but mm -hmm. this is what we eat and this is why. Yeah. So, I mean, is, is other countries, are, are other countries doing what we've done and melted these cuisines? I mean, in, I don't know, in Europe, did they, do, do they have the same kind of mix and, and changing cuisines or is that an American thing to, to try to suit everything to our taste? Well, look, there's a lot of American influence that is, or has se seep seeped, I guess that's the past tense. Sounds good. <coughs> Pardon me. That, that is now, in Europe's food culture. Um, first time I ever worked in, in Vienna, Austria, I was new to Europe, I was with NBC. Um, we did a story, we fed it to New York, which given the time difference happened around 11 p.m. or midnight. And then I said to the local group of drivers and translators that we worked with in Vienna, I said, guys, I've never been to your city before, tell me where you like to eat. They took me to a barbecue joint. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, um, we're having influence on European culture. However, and this is painting with a very broad brush, generally speaking, European cultures um, are deeply set in their regional cuisines. Mm -hmm. um, Italy, for example, um, uh, folks in Naples will tell you that theirs is the best and folks in Rome will tell you that theirs is the best. So there's much more um, doctrinaire hanging on to structure around what you eat and where you eat it. Um, we're different here. And in fact, in the United States, and you can see this as good or bad as you wish, regional distinction is falling by the wayside. It used to be that to get a good lobster roll, you had to go to New England. It used to be that to get really good fried chicken, you had to go to the South. It used to be that if you wanted Memphis barbecue, you had to go to Memphis. And if you wanted Texas barbecue, you had to go to Texas. That is changing. You can now find very, very good examples of pretty much every regional dish someplace else. Is it quite as good as back home? Maybe not. Maybe it is. Um, and, you know, Ruth Reichel, the legendary food writer, said to me about the lobster roll, that it troubles her to see lobster rolls being consumed outside of New England, that they should be eaten in New England. And she likened it to eating strawberries out of season. But the fact of the matter is we as a society with the um, benefit or um, the negatives associated with um, refrigeration, freezing and travel are now used to getting things all the time at every place. And on the one hand, I guess if I'm in Chicago and I go to Smoke, which is a great fusion barbecue spot, and order Texas sausage that, that I shouldn't be able to get in Chicago, and it's really good, I, I guess if I live in Chicago, that's a great thing. On the other hand, it, it kind of takes, with no disrespect to Smoke, um, Barry Sorkin, who runs it, is a terrific guy. It's a terrific restaurant. I'm just using this as a conceptual example. There's something or used to be something special about looking forward to going to Texas because I'm going to get barbecue there. Kind of like looking at you on, on the Zoom, you're too young to remember this, but back in the day, Coors beer would not ship east of the Rockies, which made it special, super duper wonderful if you could go to Denver and get yourself a Coors. You know, um, availability, uh, can take some of the sheen off things. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, are we better served by the fact that you can get a really good bagel in Denver? Perhaps we are. I mean, I, if I'm in Denver, I want a good bagel. Yeah, no, I, I understand that completely. And even using the, the beer example, up until about two years ago, for some reason, Yingling did not come to Indiana. You couldn't get Yingling in Indiana. We and everybody loved it, and everybody, you know, would drive to Ohio to buy it. Now we can get it, and it's just lost the the sheen. Like people don't even necessarily care anymore once we've got it. And then also, kind of the odd thing about being able to get everything everywhere um, is you. 
you, it does lose some sheen. Like I was, you know, in New Orleans, finally getting real Creole and Cajun cuisine. And then, you know, almost, I almost compared it to like, there's places here in Indianapolis that I feel like might be better. It's just, it's a weird thing. And I don't, I, I do kind of agree that it, it almost is better to be able to go. You have to actually go and get that experience. And, and yeah, I, I agree with you there. Also, it's all wrapped up in an experience. For example, um, living on the Jersey Shore, I'm close to some remarkable oyster beds. They're farmed, as 95% of oysters are today. The oysters that come out of the water here, to my mind, taste better than the oysters in New Orleans. But the only place I want to get an oyster po' boy is in New Orleans. There's just something about it. You know? Yeah. No, I, I hear you there. I hear you there. Something else that I read that you can answer that's a really interesting topic is dishes that are becoming more popular and less popular. What are, what are some of those? Let me put it this way. What dishes are on the cusp of popularity? Okay. I am surprised by the fact that Peruvian food has not broken through. Mm. I am surprised by the fact that Thai food while it's close, it, it's part of the everyday menu in big cities, it still isn't like Chinese or sushi. It, it doesn't quite have acceptance into the broader um, American menu. Uh, what's becoming less popular? Um, nothing. I mean, there's no particular kind of food that's going away that I can tell. I think what is becoming more popular are replacements. I think you're seeing an inexorable climb in um, meat replacement with plant-based mm. proteins. I think there is a level it will not pass, but I also believe that its growth has come as a surprise to many people. Um, when I was writing the book, McDonald's, for example, had shown no interest in um, plant-based protein. Since, uh, since then, they've started to exhibit an interest in playing around with it. Um, I, I, think, I think fake hamburgers, I, I think fake's the wrong, well, no, it's not the wrong word, it's fake. Um, I, I think plant-based foods are going to continue to play an increasing role in, um, in the food universe. Um, what I don't see disappearing, you know, we talk a really good game about health. Um, I don't see, I don't see us walking away from um, fat laden proteins that quickly. Although I will say um, the inexorable growth of chicken at the expense of beef in especially the fast food universe is significant. Um, chicken is, uh, surpassed beef, uh, across the board a few years back. And that, that's not going back anytime soon. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think is going to go away post COVID is some of the more complicated menu items that sit down in restaurants, because, um, I think one of the things they learned during COVID was that you can very efficiently and effectively produce a much smaller menu, um, and control costs in doing it. So I think you are going to see a simplification of menus uh, across the board. Um, I don't. I don't think you know. Uh, whole chicken is is certainly been supplanted by chicken parts um, for the average consumer. Um, there's an interesting story in what they're going to do about wings. They continue to get more popular, and chickens only have two wings. So there's. There's a problem there, which is why you now have the so-called boneless wing, which is made out of breast meat. Um, that's, uh, that's pretty much sums up, I think, my yeah. view of the current state of food. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about Food Americana, your, your book. Tell us how we can, we can find that book. Um, it is available for pre-order at Amazon.com, Walmart.com. Barnes and Noble, I guess.com and bookshop.com. Um, and uh, presumably at your independent local bookstore as well. And um, it's a good gift too. 
give it to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, you're, you're a fascinating guy with a lot of information when it comes to food. So I'm sure it is something that that's going to be an, of interest to a lot of people to get some more of your stories. So we, we kind of heard how we can connect with, with you through the book. Any other ways to, to connect with, with David Page? Um, well, I've got the Food Americana Instagram page. Uh-huh. I've got a Food Americana Facebook page. And I would love to converse with anybody who wants to share some thoughts. I am a, a deep lover of food and of the social interaction that it generates. So if you want to talk to me, I'm around. I like it. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Really appreciate your here. time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a joy. Absolutely. And that was my interview with David Page. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope you see just the just a vast amount of information um, that Mr. Page has on food. I was just, I, I honestly speaking with him, I was just, I guess, just overwhelmed with just how much he knows about all the intricacies of it. You know, behind the the culture of how it was, you know, originally brought to the United States. All these different restaurants around. Um, the country, you know, there was times that I was trying to tell him about certain places. He already knew it. He knew the owners of it. Uh, he is just a, an amazing guy. I I was just, I was really fascinated by hearing from him. He brought up so many things that I would have never even thought about. Um, just really cool to hear how, how diners, drive-ins, and dives you know, helped a lot of struggling restaurants, you know, stay afloat. That popularity and, you know, bringing them on tv actually made them gain business and gain customers and gain a fan base so that's that's just a really powerful thing um just learning about how you know we as americans have you know created this melting pot of different foods and different cultures you know just like you're just like we are as a people of course we are as a food so i thought it was just really cool how um, you know, we, we do just take all these different cultural, uh, cultures, foods, and, um, sometimes modify them where, you know, there's a, you know, there's a resurgence of, of trying to, to eat, you know, things as, as they originally were, um, you know, whether they were in China or Mexico or, or all these other things. Um, but uh, it was just a, a cool conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope if you want to hear more about you know the the culture behind food and American food, you check out Food Americana. It's available you know wherever books are sold. I certainly am uh, picking it up myself. So thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I appreciate David's time. Check out that book. Um, follow you know follow this podcast on Instagram. Not in a huff podcast. That is the handle. And uh, thanks so much, and we'll see you next week. Take it away, Scott. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.